Welcome to the Synaptologist Podcast. I'm Daryl Linares, and down the line, of course, is my good friend, Dr. Neil Fox. Neil, how are you doing? I'm really good, mate. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. I'm very much looking forward to the series that we have got lined up, which we are calling Filmstock Extra. So these are extra bits of content which we are putting out on the main feed that come from recordings that we did at your Filmstock Festival in Luton. That's right, yeah. We had such great conversations with Mike Carey, Kieran Evans and Jeannie Finley. We wanted to give them some really prominent airtime on the main feed and let people enjoy the, the kind of the wisdom that those amazing filmmakers and writers shared with us. So we're not going to go into a long extended discussion for these episodes and there won't be an outro either. Each one will just go straight into the main body of the content. So what have we got lined up today? On today's episode, it's my conversation with the writer and graphic novelist uh, M.R. Carey, also known as Mike Carey, who talked about his work adapting The Girl with All the Gifts from his own book and his work as a graphic novelist and comic book writer. Fantastic. So let's get straight into that now. When we were talking about doing the festival uh, again, um, and I've been podcasting for a few years, and part of my day job at, at Falmouth University has been kind of hosting guest speakers and kind of having these kind of conversations, I like these kind of career conversations. So I said, let's, let's make that a, a part of the festival. And, uh, and Justin said, we should definitely get Mike. Uh, if we can, to because you know, I think he'd be great. And I hadn't, I didn't really know your, uh, our guest's work. I'm talking a lot, I haven't introduced him. <laughs> a bit weird. Uh, uh, and then, yeah, I uh, I watched the the girl with the gifts and uh, and sort of and sort of did a little bit of research and thought, yeah, I really want to want to talk to uh, to our guest this evening because I think it's going to be a really great chat. So thanks everyone for coming and thank our guest, Mike Aaron. So I wanted to start with a, a, just a, a kind of kind of bit of context about Luton, really, and kind of what what brought you to Luton in the first place. Um, so I, I come from Liverpool, and I lived in Liverpool until I was 19, and then I came south to go to university. I was at uh, St Peter's College in Oxford, and I met a, a girl there, a woman there, in my first term, who was from North London, um, who had lived her entire life within a, like a two-mile radius. Southgate, Cock, Foster's, Barn, and Muswell Hill. That's where I studied in Middlesex. Right, yeah. She lived about 100 metres from the Middlesex camp. Wow. Um, and we just, we just, when we finished uh, our degree and, and our doctorates and then our teacher training, uh, we moved into a flat in North London. And I was, I was, so I was applying to sixth form colleges in the South East. Sixth form colleges because um, during my teacher training, uh, I went to Stanbury campus, and I think it's fair to say that the kids at Stanbury chewed me up and spat me out. <laughs> um, it was, uh, it was. Uh, I found it kind of rough, and I decided I would try, I would try and go into the sixth form sector um, because it was the, 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 it was less problematic from the point of view of discipline. I didn't have to be a tough guy. Um, was the theory? Uh, so I applied to Hills Road, Long Road in Cambridge. Um, few other places and, and Luton was one of them. Um, at that time Luton was just setting up um, communication studies as an edible. So I walked in for a job in English, I applied for a job in English. I met Sally Leach who was the head of communication and she said the successful applicant for this job will need to be able to teach communication studies. So I thought about that and, uh, and when, when, when we came to the any questions bit of the interview I said what does that mean, being able to teach communication studies? And she said, basically, it just means saying yes. It's, <laughs> it's a weird, weird interdisciplinary thing with bits of social psychology and bits of media theory, and uh, you'll love it. So, um, so I, said, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really up for that, and I got the job. Um, and the whole time I was teaching here, I was commuting from, uh, from London. So how long were you here, and have you got any, what, were you, what were your kind of memories of, of your time sort of teaching Luton students. I was here, so I did two stints. I was here from 85 to 90. Then I ran away to become an accountant in the same way that some people ran away to join the circus. Um, but that, that was on, on, the, on, the, on the mistaken belief that accountancy was a nine to five job, where teaching was a 24 seven job. So I just thought I'd be able to write evenings and weekends. This did not prove to be the case. Uh, so I came back in 92 when Richard Evans 
who was acting head of English took a sabbatical and I sort of I took over some of his teaching load and I, I ended up staying for another five years until '97. Um, and I loved it. And I think the college was um, was changing a lot during that period. Uh, when, when, I, when I first started teaching at Lucent, they had this absolutely wonderful thing called the Complementary Studies Program. Um, you had a teaching, uh, teaching load that was 19, 20 hours, but two or three hours of that could be complementary studies, which meant you could teach one hour of anything, anything at all that you liked. Uh, and students could just sign up for CS programs to fill out their timetables. Uh, they weren't examined, it was just to come and do something interesting. So I used to teach complementary studies photography, which was, uh, which was brilliant. Uh, I, I, loved, I loved the college, and I'm still, uh, still friends with an awful lot of people who I taught with uh, um, we meet up regularly. I'm not part of the AFLUVIX, the, um, the, the, the group for former Luton 61 College staff, but that's only because I don't like joining anything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I still see loads of people who I used to teach with, and, and quite a few of my students. I went to the 50th birthday party of a, a woman who was in my first ever English Lit class wow. about three months ago. That was weird. <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned there kind of getting out of the, uh, the 24-7 racket of teaching into accountancy, but then, oh, wow. yeah. Yeah. but then also, you know, writing is not, a night, that is a 24-7. So how, how and when are you kind of starting to write seriously and uh, what's your focus as you're kind of starting out as a writer? I was always doing it. Um, when, when, when I was doing my degree and my doctorate, I wrote a, a whole slew of um, really awful novels. Uh, it's probably one reason why I never actually got the doctorate. Um, I used to write these huge, shapeless bags of story because um, no, nobody ever taught me how to structure a story, and I was too dumb to figure it out for myself. So I just my my, my my recipe for writing a novel was write chapter one, make a cup of tea come back right by chapter two, <laughs> rinse and repeat, and then when you get something that feels vaguely endy, write the end. Um, so I did, I did that quite a lot in my 20s. And I would send these things to publishers and get rejection letters that would say things like, yeah, you should try writing this as a novel. <laughs> but then, by the time I started at Luton, um, I was, kind of, I was kind of giving up the abortive novel um, gig for an abortive comic book gig. Um, it was Lynn, my wife, who said, you know, an awful lot of what you read for pleasure at the moment is comic books, so why don't you try out for, uh, for that instead? And I started doing comic book journalism. Um, I wrote for a magazine called The Fantasy, no, yeah, Fantasy Advertiser, uh, which was edited by Martin Skidmore, and for a few other sort of British fanzines. It wasn't a paying gig, it was just writing reviews and articles about comics. And then through that I began to meet comics editors and I started to send pictures. Um, and around about the time when I left Luton the second time, I was starting to get paid work. Actually, I need to put the, uh, the microphone down so I can do air quotes. <laughs> paid <laughs> work. There were checks. They bounced. But there were checks. It was sort of paid work. It's paid work. It's getting closer, yeah. Um, I did a, a, an adaptation of Dr. Faustus with Mike Perkins. I did a book called Inferno with Michael Gaydos. Um, all very small, uh, American small press, but uh, nice production values. And I was sending everything that I had out, I was sending to DC. Um, at that point, uh, my favourite comic was The Sandman by Neil Gaiman, which I thought then and still think now completely redefined what you could do in long form comic storytelling. It an incredible piece of work. It was a novel told across seven years worth of comics. Um, so I was sending it to all the editors who were involved in Sandman. Everything I had out, I'd send, send them copies with a begging letter saying, please let me work for you, please let me work for you. And then um, one day I got a letter back uh, from Elisa Quitney, who was the editor on Sandman for the last part of his run. Um, and yeah, an awful lot of things sort of spun out of that. Through that I got the Lucifer gig, I got Petrofax, a whole bunch of Sandman Universe projects. I was, I was an overnight success in 10 years. <laughs> like, like the best. Um, so what's it like kind of, you know, without being kind of too rude, you're a little older in terms of like, you, you're kind of settled into a career almost, and then you're also trying to do this incredibly other difficult, challenging, time-consuming career kind of on top, you know, what was driving you to 
to kind of to stick at it with the with the writing because um, I think a lot of people would have just said oh, I'll do it I'll just draw for fun or I'll write for fun you know but you kind of are pursuing it past the time when people normally start. I think it was just something that I, I always did. Storytelling was a thing I loved. Um, and for an awful long time, it was just a hobby. It was just something I did because it was fun to do. And yeah, I, I, I sent stuff out to editors without any expectation that it would be picked up. And it sort of dawned on me quite gradually that it could be a career. But it was, a, it was an itch I had to scratch. Um, I guess that's why I kept at it. Um, I was constantly sort of trying out different things, you know, a, a little bit of um, you know, short stories, novels, comics, screenwriting, journalism, and then later radio and games, and uh, you, know, you find out what you can do by doing a ton of things that you can't do, and thinking, oh my god, that's all. Um, so I, I, I just, um, I, I was, there's an experiment you can do with flies and bees, um, which is quite cruel. If you, if you catch a bunch of bees in a bottle, and you put the bottle in a window with the closed end of the bottle toward the light and the neck of the bottle into, the, into a room, the bees will all die because they'll just go toward the light. If you do it with flies, they'll all escape because they just ricochet everywhere until they get out. I'm definitely a fly. <laughs> I, I, just, you know, I never had a plan. I never had a sense of direction. I just constantly went around bumping into things until um, I started bumping into the right things. Mm. What did it feel like to be able to kind of have to stop doing the the day job because the the this other career, this kind of lifelong passion, has become the career? You know, how did that feel? It was it was terrifying and exhilarating. Um, I was lucky really because I had a I had a very understanding boss um, at college in Northwest London, a guy named Mark Hill. And when I went to him and said I want to quit teaching to write comic. He laughed his leg off. <laughs> he, he said, yeah, you're, you're going to be back. You're going to be back soon, sooner rather than later. I tell you what, um, I'm going to give you a sabbatical. Take a year, and the job's still open for you if you need to come back within a year, which was incredibly kind. Um, in the end, it was, a, it was problematic because he kept on calling me back in to teach classes that they couldn't get cover for. So <laughs> it, was, it was a semi-sabbatical, but it was great to have the safety net. Because yeah. the, the first month when I didn't get a paycheck, it felt like I just jumped over the edge of a cliff. It was, you know, because in, in, in writing, you, you're kind of like, you're, you're a spider, you live by what comes out of you. And if you stop, if you stop writing, you stop getting paid. Um, and that's, that can be, Mm. Terrifying, but, it, but it's worked out. You know, I, I had a little bit of money saved, so I figured I could get back into teaching if I needed to. Even if, if you know, the comics dried up straight away, I'd survive. I wouldn't starve. Um, but I've never, I've never gone back. Yes, it's worked out. Um, there's another, there's another limited connection that I wanted to sort of, sort of raise because, and I'm, I'm, I imagine this is around this time, which is when um, some of you may know we had, there was a comic book artist and a graphic novelist called Steve Dillon who uh, passed away a couple of years ago, who was a big figure locally. Um, and uh, we've been asked at the festival, you know, were we going to mark, mark that? Because obviously we're, we're back. But it didn't, it didn't necessarily feel right because we were, it felt a bit tacked on. And then, of course, I, I said to, to Mike, if, you, if he was aware of Steve's work, and you said that you'd actually kind of worked together on a couple of issues. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, just for the, you know, just for the, the local audience again, just sort of share what... What that experience was like, and, uh, and and you know what what Steve Steve's work meant. Well, Steve Steve was one half of a partnership that defined the character John Constantine, um, Hel Hellblazer, uh, working with with Garth Ennis. I came on to Hellblazer many years after that, and Steve had left the book, but he came back. He came back just for two issues at the start of my run, and it was it was wonderful, you know, because. He was a legend, and here he was coming back to a character that you know he made iconic and sort of left his mark on. So the first two issues I did on Hellblazer, um, which would just brought the character John Constantine back from America. The writer before me on the book was Empress Brian Azzarello, the only American uh, at that stage ever to write uh, write Constantine. He did not get the accent right because <laughs> Americans don't understand that there are multiple British accents. So sometimes John was scout, sometimes he was grown, sometimes he was vaguely Irish. Um, so I, I, I brought him back to America and I thought, 
you know, John, John's like me, he's a scouser living in the south, so I, I took him back to Liverpool. So the two issues I did with Steve uh, were set in Liverpool, and the sense of place is wonderful, and you look at it and you think, yeah, that's, that's John Constantine, he's back. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, a, it was a great start to my run, and he was a great collaborator. I think, he's, I think that there's, there's two kinds of comic artists. Um, there's, there's people who are like flashy and impressive but can't tell a story and then there are people who are just really really good visual storytellers and the reason I work with Peter Gross so much is because he's, he's, a, a writer, he's an artist of that second kind his, his art is always in the service of the story and I think that was true of Steve as well um, you, your eye was just drawn into his page and then carried along with the flow of the narrative Thank you. Um, and then out of, I guess out of all that kind of early work comes Lucifer, which um, would you say that is the kind of defining kind of book that kind of leads to the, almost the second part of your, the work that leads to the second part of your career? It was the first monthly comic book that I ever did, the first continuity comic book, and I wrote it for um, six years, more than six years. Um, Neil Gaiman was creative consultant. And I'd already met him through the Seminar Presents uh, stuff that I did. And when I pitched Lucifer as a monthly, I can remember a phone call I had with Neil where he said, you really should do a monthly book because the only way you can, you can figure it out is by doing it. It's one of these things you only learn by doing. Um, he said, you, you can't tell from the outside what a weird mix of planning and serendipity it is. And I said something like, you can't tell me that Sandman wasn't planned meticulously from start to finish because the last issue pays off stuff that you did in the first issue. It's all there, all the seeds are there. And he said, yeah, that's true. We knew where we were going. But you wouldn't believe how many things just happened because they happened, because you get a great idea along the way. And that's what Lucifer was for me. It was, it was uh, just like a glorious laboratory, a glorious classroom. It's where I learned. I learned a ton of stuff about how to structure a story. I said earlier that my, my, my novels in my 20s were just appalling. They were appalling because they had no shape. And with comics, to some extent, the shape is imposed from the outside because your canvas has a fixed size. Each issue, each monthly issue is 20 pages or 22 pages. So you have to become a miser. You have to like cost out every scene that you put in. You have to think, yeah, does that scene need three pages or can I, can I squeeze it down into two? and have a splash over there. So it forces you to think in a conscious way about structure. And coming out of that into, back into novels, you get drunk on the power because you know, a, a novel is as big or as small as you want it to be. Um, you, can, you can literally, you, know, you can just sort of like, um, you can decide you're gonna have a subplot that takes, takes the main characters off for three chapters to Louisiana, which I did in one of the caster, in one of the caster books. Um, and nobody's gonna turn around and say no. Um, so co comics was a great, a great way to sort of figure out a ton of stuff about storytelling. I, I sort of came out of Lucifer in a very different place than I went in. So it's almost that's like a kind of, yeah, like a school. You know, you're getting schooled on all the things that are going to help you kind of do all the other kinds of writing that you end up doing. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a great discipline, I guess, it's building. And of course it's also, it's collaborative. It's, uh, so it's uh, a very different form of storytelling than just straight prose. You're working with a team. You're working very closely with the penciler, um, less closely with the inker and the colorist and the lecturer and so on. Um, but it's it's it, it, it's also a great way, therefore, of, of sort of like um, figuring out different ways into story and negotiating story, um, breaking story with other people. Whereas you know, sitting in a room with a with a keyboard, um, you can get into a rut. You can get into you can get sort of stuck into the, into a a habit of just always doing the same thing in the same way every time. So, am I right in saying that Lucifer, the, 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 the character that you kind of worked on, has, has, is that what became the TV show Lucifer? Loosely? Kind of. Kind of. Kind of. I, the, the, um, the TV show draws more on Neil's work in Sandman than it does on my work in Lucifer, but really it's, it's very, very tenuously connected to, uh, to both of them. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a police procedural that happens to have the Lucifer character in it, and it features characters from Sandman like Amanadiel, like um, uh, Mazakin, and characters from Lucifer like Amanadiel. Um, but its um, its relationship to to our work is it's off on a tangent. But I think, I think any adaptation is reinvention. Yeah, that's what I was going to kind of ask. That's how 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 you feel about that? Is that almost kind of like is that a good thing that you they kind of don't mess too closely or, or you know, how do you feel about that process when you see it being done? 
I think it's an inevitable thing. I think whenever you adapt, you, you start um, you start by stripping the story down, I think. You, t you take it apart and you look at the pieces of it and you think, what are they doing? And then you put it together again in a way that works for a different medium, which is not going to be the same way uh, that it worked in the original medium. Um, I was, uh, one, one of the adaptations that I worked on was the comic book version of Neil Gaiman's Neverwork. Um, and we made all sorts of decisions on that that sort of took it away from the TV series, but I think in ways that were respectful of the original and sort of made it more, more comic booky. Uh, made, made it sort of fit for purpose in, in the comic book medium. Um, again, that's a, that's a, a great discipline for, for sort of um, making you sort of examine your own default options when you tell a story. Um, adaptation is something that uh, I, I, I do whenever I get the chance because I really, I really just enjoy the process of translating a story across from one medium to another. Great, and before we get into that in terms of the, the girl with all the gifts as the, the kind of the case study, uh, do you feel like there's been a shift in in the process of adaptation of comic books in kind of film and television that that seems more not I mean not all but but seems like more interested in in being faithful to the spirit or trying to trying to do that kind of honest work of respecting the source material and, and trying to translate it in a way that honors that. No. <laughs> Good. Things get controversial. I think what's happened is um, suddenly an awful lot of stuff that was um, restricted to, to the comic book medium has now become culturally mainstream. I don't think that's a matter of respect. I think it's a matter of markets. It's you know, that it's possible to do um, faithful adaptations of things like um, uh, The Boys um, or The Avengers. Uh, and there's a, there's a mass, mass audience for it, which wouldn't, probably would not have been the case 20 years ago. You know, if you look back at the 60s Batman, charming as it is, um, it's played for laughs because you realise that there are, there are conventions that you take for granted in comic books that don't make any sense at all <laughs> when you take that into another medium. He's a guy who dresses as a bat. <laughs> so um, they, 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 you know, they, they, they play up the comedic aspects beautifully. But now you don't have to. Now you can do it straight. Now you can do superheroes acting. And that, that kind of, that, you know, tongue-in-cheek, knowing, ironic approach is very rare now. You know, it, they kind of lean really into the serious, and, you know, in a way that feels, yeah, like that they're missing something that, that, that was so formative in terms of, like, the original Batman and well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the Marvel Universe movies. I mean, I think the Avengers movies in particular have done a sort of magnificent job of uh, managing a, a vast, complicated cast in a very, very um, elaborate world and doing it well so that the, uh, the emotional beats carry. I, I know um, uh, Scorsese was talking recently about some um, comic book movies and saying that, they, as far as he was concerned, they were more like theme park rides than they were like cinema. Um, and I sort of know what he means, but I, I disagree. I think the best comic book movies, the, 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 the human drama is there at the heart of it. If you look at the relationship between Spider-Man and Iron Man, yeah, it, it's, uh, it works for me and it, and it, and it sort of it, it, it affects me. Um, but yeah, if you, look at, if you sort of then turn your eyes to some of the DC Movies, and I say this as somebody who's written extensively for DC over the last um, nearly twenty years. Some of those things, some of the um, the Snyderverse movies, are god awful <laughs> because um, you know they're they're somber without really being serious. They have a, they, they affect seriousness, but actually they're they're just they're just bananas. Um, <laughs> so you don't release the Snyder cut. That's what it's like. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, was it? Just kind of drawing out that Marvel thing, because what's interesting what you were saying in terms of the discipline of writing for comics and what Neil Gaiman was sort of talking about in terms of the, the, the monthly project. It feel, you know, uh, I can see in the Marvel thing what feels very different is that commitment to the long-term commitment to that. Almost, it, all, it feels like episodic storytelling in yeah. the way that, they, that they, they structure their films and then build everything around it. You know, that's what I was sort of saying in terms of the... It feels like that approach understands what is so attractive and possible in comic books. No, I think, I think that's true, yes. Well, one thing that comics always had, that the comic movies never had until the Marvel Universe came into being, was that kind of massive interconnectedness. 
Um, there's a woman named Ross Kennedy who um, writes academic books about comics, and she said to me once, if you take the, the Marvel Universe as a whole, the comics, it's the single biggest mythological text that the human race has ever produced. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a really nice way of looking at it. Um, and yeah, it, now suddenly, not, not, not that suddenly, it's taken 10 years, but uh, Kevin Feige seems to have found a way to realize that kind of, that kind of scope, that kind of scale yeah. in cinema. Great. So let's move on to your own uh, novel writing adaptation process with, uh, with the, the Girl with All the Gifts, um, which uh, was a book that you wrote um, and a screenplay that you wrote concurrently, I believe, which I think is, you know, it's fascinating to me because it's, it's, it happens, but it's rare that, you know, that the book and the film are being developed at the same time, particularly for a, an independent project. You know, like you can see if, if something's been commissioned as a as something in a universe, you might get two things happening at the same time. But you know, the you writing a novel and writing a screenplay at the kind of at the same time for this this world is it feels really interesting. So I just wonder if you could just talk about yeah, kind of developing the project and that process of of kind of writing simultaneously. Okay, I can talk endlessly about the topic. So please <laughs> shut me up. I need it. Yeah, I'll just toss it back. This, this came out of um, a, a lot of serendipitous things happening at the same time. One of them was um, that the Caston novels didn't sell particularly well. Um, my, my publishers liked me, but they couldn't sell me. Um, and there was a period of time when they kept on throwing things at me. They'd say, yeah, the next big thing is going to be codes and conspiracy thrillers, so write like Dan Brown. Um, <laughs> so I wrote like Dan Brown, and people bought Dan Brown. Um, <laughs> and then they said, the next big thing is going to be body swaps, do a body swap thriller. And I started doing a body swap thriller. I thought, this is silly, isn't it? Um, so I, I, I set it aside. And for uh, a couple of years, I didn't do anything for, for the sort of mainstream, uh, for the, the main orbit imprint. What I did instead was um, I collaborated on two novels with my wife, Lynn, and our daughter, Louise. Um, the first was our sort of like attempt to do um, a pastiche of the Arabian Nights. It was called um, it was called Steel Seraglio in America. It was called City of Silk and Steel in the UK. And then we did a second one, which was structurally similar. It was lots of embedded stories, stories within stories, very playful um, narrative interweavings. And that was called House of War and Witness. So for over two years, I was working really closely with two women who were both writers themselves, had their own voices which were different from my voice and their own opinions. And there were two of them, anyway, me. Um, and the, the, way, the way we did it was we, we, we sort of we triangulated on a narrative voice that worked for all of us. And then we read, chat, we read sample chapters aloud to each other and we argued it and argued it until we came to um, an idiom that we could all feel comfortable with. And I came out of that just like sensitized to stuff that I'd been doing without thinking about it. Um, and kind of like ready to take risks, ready to try something different. Um, and then I was invited to do a short story for an anthology. Um, Tony Kellner and Charlene Harris, the Charlene Harris of True Blood, used to do these annual anthologies where the theme was always something really banal and every day, like one, one year it was family holidays, another year it was DIY. And the idea was you do a horror story or a dark fantasy story or a supernatural story built to that theme, and I said I would do it. And they said, great, the theme is school days. And <laughs> I, spent, I spent a few months kind of churning out bad knockoffs of Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, I, I, you didn't tap into your Luton Six form. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Strangely not. Um, but I, and then I went to Norway. I went to the Raptors convention in Norway, and it was bitterly cold. And, the heating in my hotel room broke down. So I actually spent a lot of the, the, the four days I was there cowering under a duvet with a, with a laptop. And the, the idea of Melanie came to me, the idea of a, a, a little girl sitting in a classroom writing the essay that everybody writes a hundred times during their school career, which is what I want to be when I grow up. But the twist is she's already, you know, she's, a, she's a zombie, she's one of the undead. Growing up is not an option for her. And that, that sort of image was what became the short story of Virginia and Alice. Um, terrible title, I think. Um, and then I wrote the story, and I kind of couldn't put the character down. 
um, I kept on thinking about Melanie, I kept on thinking about that world. And so I kept on pitching it. Anyone who would stand still long enough, uh, I would pitch it out. I pitched it to Anne Clark, who was my, um, my editor at Orbit, and I hadn't done anything at Orbit for quite a while. Um, and and said, yeah, it's, it's an interesting story, but I don't see where it becomes a novel. And I said, well, I'll, I'll do you a breakdown. And I did, and she said, yeah, all right, write the novel. <laughs> and at the same time, I met Cami, Cami Gatin, who was the lead producer on the movie, and I pitched it to her. Um, and she knew Colin McCarthy, and Colin McCarthy had wanted for ages to do a movie um, that would use what he called ruined form, like <laughs> decayed urban sites, a movie that would be partly set in, in sort of like actual disused buildings, which are often incredibly beautiful in a weird, mm. in a weird way. So we all got together in a room and we all sort of plotted out the movie at the same time as, as I was writing the novel. And it was just fantastic. It was, it was a really, really enjoyable experience. So, it's, yeah. so they were both adaptations of the short in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you sort of say about the, the, the room builders, because one of the most striking things about the film is that sense of place, you know, um, which is so striking in the film. Okay. Okay. Yeah, go for it. Exactly. The, um, the hospital, you know, there's a sequence where they, they find their way into a hospital, they barricade themselves in, um, and then they have various sort of encounters with them. That's not only a real place, it's a real place that actually looks like that. There is zero set dressing, <laughs> except for the stairwell bed with all the furniture piled up in it. That was stuff that they brought. Everything else looked exactly the way it looks in real life. Um, and it's right next door to a hospital that's still working. So it's like they moved out of the old building into the new one. Um, and there are some traveller families who are allowed to graze their horses on the lawn. <laughs> so while we were shooting, we were sort of looking at these beautiful little horses trotting across the grass. You talk about it so kind of passionately and so involved, um, which is kind of rare for a screenwriter, you yeah. know, because uh, it's not often that you're even on set or even involved in that. So, but it feels like you were heavily involved in the process of making the film, um, you know. Was, was that because of the kind of, again, it, it's a lot of it seems to be coming back to collaboration, you know, finding a producer and a director who want to work in that creative way. Um, and what was the, what, and, and, and from that, what was the, the experience of, of kind of making the film in that way? That, that was exactly it. it. It is all to do with the collaborations, and in this case it was to do with the, the friendship that formed between the three of us, between me, Cammy, and Colin. Um, yeah, we, we, we we worked the screenplay up together. It's got my name on it, but uh, every single draft of it um, came out of conversations that we had. Usually, around about this time, they were both working on Endeavour, um, the TV series. So wherever they were doing post-production on an Endeavour episode was where we would meet at the end of the working day. We'd get some pizza in. We'd just sit around for a few hours in someone else's space and, and sort of work on Girl with All the Gift. We did that for getting on for a year. Actually, there was also there was another producer involved, but that stayed down the colour who dropped out later. Um, and then Angus Lamont came on board. But really, the, the nucleus was the three of us. Uh, and we all of us felt like we, we owned the story jointly. Colin said to me once, making movies is the best thing in the world, so long as everyone's making the same movie. <laughs> and it really felt like we were. Like we knew what we were doing, and we all, we all, um, we all jointly owned it. Um, and I think that's, that's the paradise version of yeah. being a screenwriter. There's definitely an inferno version of being a screenwriter where you hand in the draft and then you're sort of like kicked off into the long grass and, and awful things happen to the draft and then the film happens or doesn't happen. Um, but you, you, you're right, I mean, usually the screenwriter is locked out of the production for the very good reason that I think a screenwriter on set is a pain in the arse. I take that. a screenwriter. They're, they're an alternative focus. You know, yeah. the, the director's trying to get the film made, the screenwriter's sort of popping up and saying, oh, I, did, I didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't look like that. Um, but it was never like that. You know, I was there, and they did set recce. Um, I was there, um, I met all of the, um, the, the heads of department. Um, I was on set for about two-thirds of the total shoot. I'm in the film. Um, second zombie who gets his head blown off. That's me. Um, Lynn's sitting next to standing right next to me. Cammy thinks Lynn is laughing when my head explodes. Um, 
She's not she's, our character for the zombie, though, mm-hmm. so she wouldn't have done that. Um, just uh, about casting, then, because one of the interesting things, kind of looking through the research, is that, and in the in the book, uh, the ethnicities uh, are kind of flipped to what they are in terms yeah. of the lead characters, yeah. and you know, often that's a little yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and often that that decision is, like you said, made out. Of the screenwriter is not necessarily, you know, even consulted. So. Is that something that you were concerned about? Was that your idea, or what, how did that? Was it just through the process of casting and finding the right people, and, and that becomes a natural part of the process? Well, again, we were we were all sort of on the same page throughout this. We were working under the auspices of the BFI. The BFI gave us both development money and production money, and the BFI is committed to diversity, um, and so you know we 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 embraced that wholeheartedly. But we went in um, feeling, and I think it was the right choice. You don't you don't get a diverse cast by ring fencing specific roles. You you, you, you get you, you get them by um, auditioning as widely as you possibly can, uh, and, and then making sure that your final choices cover as wide as wide a field as possible. Um, the way we got sent it was amazing because we already had a shortlist. I was I was talking to Anna about this before. Um, we had a shortlist of six. Um, the the, the, the Camion column watched 3,000 audition tapes. They did 500 live auditions, and they got it down to six girls. Um, on the Friday before what they called the chemistry, the chemistry screenings? Uh, chemistry auditions. They were, gonna, they were gonna have all of the girls act opposite Gemma, act the same scene opposite Gemma, and just see what the chemistry was like between them. On the Friday before that was due to happen, Colin got a, friend, uh, a call from an old friend in Nottingham, who said you really should come back, come up and meet? So Northampton, not Nottingham. Uh, you need to come up and meet two more girls. And Colin said, No, I don't, because we got um, we got our shortlist, and I'm going home to my family who I haven't seen for a long, long time. And the guy said, You need to meet these girls as a favour to me. Come, mm-hmm. Colin came, and one of the two girls was saying. So he called Cammy very sheepishly and said, we need to add one more to the shortlist. <laughs> and as soon as, as soon as she and Jeff were in the same room, as soon as they started um, riffing off each other, which is obvious that it worked, that the, the, the relationship was believable. Um, so you know, that she became our, our, our Melanie. And it was her first feature role. The only thing she'd done before that was a short in which she plays the, the youngest sister of the lead. So she'd been on screen for like two minutes. And in our movie, as you saw, She's there for like a hundred minutes or so. The total running time of one hundred and four. It's um, the film depends on her absolutely. So if she hadn't been up to it, we would have fallen apart. But she was brilliant. Yeah, she is remarkable. Um, the uh, the Hungries. There is our our lead Hungry. Um, uh, did that. What was it like to see that kind of? Because you're writing, and you have an idea. I guess you have an idea in your head of what they're going to look like. So, what was it like to see them, and did they? How did they match up what you were imagining when you wrote on the page? And then, kind of the world of the film itself. You know, did it feel like the world? Not necessarily exactly, because you know it, that, that's not necessarily possible. But did it feel like it was? You could see in on the screen the world that you'd imagined on the page. It's, it was better than what was in my head, really. And I'd already had that experience many times in comics, because when you, when you write a comic script, when I write a comic script, I start by drawing an awful stick-figure version of the script, and then, um, and then it goes to an artist who does it properly. And, you know, surprise, surprise, artists have better visual imaginations than writers. Are you going to pick me up on that? No, no, no. <laughs> um, so I'll let that one slide, man. So there, 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 there were so many things that just worked better than uh, better than, than the version of it that I had in my head. The, the, the makeup team um, took their inspiration from natural form, so they were making um, castings, rubber castings, for, uh, PVC castings from broccoli and cauliflower, tree bark, fungal growths, and so on. And then and then they were sort of like sticking to people's faces. So they the, the, the organic look that the Hungries have, like, they, they look like they're sort of like the stuff growing from inside them, which is exactly the way they're meant to look. But the, the other thing that was incredibly striking was the, um, the scene where they're walk- scenes where they're walking into London through streets that have become mature forests, you know, where the trees have sort of grown up through the buildings. Um, they got that effect by, they, they sent Seth, um, who was one of the, the effects guys, to Chernobyl, uh, to the village just outside Chernobyl, with a drone camera. 
he was he was second unit. It was just, it was just him and a drone camera, um, and he he just sent all those aerial shots. It's Seb sending this drone down down the streets, and then he came home and none of the footage had come out because the settings were buggered. So he had to go back again and do the whole thing a second time. And it's one thing to read those th the, the, those scenes in the book, and it's a completely different thing to actually see it because it, it makes it makes some of the themes that are implicit in the book suddenly just like really in your face obvious. You know, the stuff about our stewardship of nature, the point that the world will get on perfectly well without us. If we were to become extinct tomorrow, yeah, the world wouldn't wouldn't blink, it wouldn't wouldn't skip a beat. All, all of the all the spaces in the ecosystem that we currently fill up would be filled up with other things. Perfectly uh, into my, my kind of last question really before I kind of turn it out, which is about the themes. You know, I, I sort of said to you that I watched this film uh, the other week um, and it struck me as an absolutely perfect film for 2019 in terms of, you know, just literally what is in the news right now, you know, with um, British children, um, you know, orphaned and kind of left behind in Syria and the government you know, not bringing them back, kind of expatriating them, um, and kind of taking no responsibility for them, and just that theme of like how we, how we deal with our children, how we how we think about children and what they're capable of and who they are. It felt so kind of resonant for now, and the you know, and, and you sort of talking there about the kind of the planet and extinction rebellion and, and and young people's attitudes to us as older people, you know, the older generation. And there's two lines at the end which are just absolutely you know, kind of brilliant and chilling, which is that one of the, you know, um, she says, why should it be us who die for you? Um, which is just like, yeah, you know, and that kind of, you know, reading the news was apt. And then um, when uh, Melanie says, it's not yours anymore to Paddy's character, you know, it was just absolutely, yeah, this is, this is right now, you know, and that felt like, you know, obviously intention in terms of you. So, you know, are those the things that you're interested in when you're telling the story about about the planet and about kind of young people? Because it feels like a film about young people, which loads of films have young people in, but they're not really about young people. They're not about what young people can do and who they are and what they're going to end up being. It, it's definitely a film about the, the sort of way in which our children inherit the earth, the, the way in which eventually we have to sort of step back and, and, and your place to them. Um, going off on a quick tangent, I think it was yesterday, much from the day before yesterday, broke the record for the number of new voters registered in a single day, 308,000, which I think is a good sign. Awesome. Um, there are two myths that inform um, Girl with All the Gifts that are kind of like in the back of my head when I was writing it. One's general, one's uh, universal, one's specific and one's universal. The specific one is the Pandora myth. Yeah. Girl with All the Gifts literally translates the name Pandora. Um, and it obviously, there's a sense in which Melanie's decision at the end is whether or not to open the box. Um, and in the legend there is hope at the bottom of the box, and in the movie there is hope that the children will make a better job. You know, the, 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 the world will be reborn, but it won't be reborn with us at the helm, it will be them. But, and then the, the, the general one is just, you know, that's, that's, that's a phase that every parent goes through. There's a point where you realise, you know, your kids aren't, you, you, you can't run their lives for them. The best thing you can do is step away and let them run their lives for themselves because they're, they're better adapted for the world as it is now than you are. Um, Danny DeVito said in an interview one time, the thing about kids is if you raise them right, they'll leave you. <laughs> I think you know, it's, it's glorious, it's a, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing, however painful it is for the, uh, for the parents at the time. Great. Thank you. A beautiful end to my part of the conversation. Um, has anybody got any questions from the floor? Yes, David. Yeah, I just wanted to ask what you've got going on next. Um, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm still doing this thing of uh, turning short stories into novels. I did a short story for um, uh, the PS Press anthology Weird Winter Tales which is a story about uh, a young boy coming of age in the Calder Valley um, in, in a, a few centuries' time. Um, and I've turned that into a trilogy. I'm working, working on the third, the third number of the trilogy, and they're going to all come out back to back next year, which is exciting. Um, it's post-apocalyptic territory again, but it's very different from Girl with All the Gifts. Um, I've just started
started doing a comic for DC for um, the Hill House line, which is a line of books curated by Joe Hill, um, Stephen King's son. Uh, my book is called The Dollhouse Family. It's about a little girl who inherits a creepy uh, 18th century dollhouse from an aged relative who's just died um, and starts to talk to the dolls. The dolls are alive. At a certain point, they invite her into the dollhouse and she gets to sort of meet them um, face to face. And then it turns out that the dollhouse is alive too and has an agenda of its own. <laughs> I've been doing that. Um, we are very, very close to um, getting another movie um, going with exactly the, exactly the same production team and same director as Girl with All the Gifts. It will be based on Southside, the novel I did immediately after Girl with All the Gifts, which is um, a ghost story set in a women's prison on the principle of write what you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we have a director, we have a casting director, and we're, we're very, very close to moving on that. Um, just keeping my fingers crossed that nothing goes wrong with it. I'll look out for it all. Three? I said I'll look out for it all. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kieran? Uh, you talked about your relationship with the director on the film and how you uh, were very involved in the production. Uh, in comparison to that, on the comics you've worked on, how do you like to manage your relationship with the artist? Um, that's a good question. And it's a kind of a complicated one because it does depend on the artist. Um, it took me a long while to, to realize that if you specify too much for the artist, then basically you're just tying his or her hands behind their back. Um, the, the only comic script I'd seen when I started writing comics was the script for Watchmen 1, because it was in the back of the trade paperback collection of Watchmen. So I thought everybody wrote comics like Alan Moore, <laughs> and they don't, for the simple reason that Alan Moore is Alan Moore, and the rest of us are not. <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 the art direction for that first panel, which is just the smiley badge with the blood on it, runs to about a thousand words. It's an eight and a half. So I get looser and looser as I work with an artist over time. So with Peter, Peter and I have now done over 150 comics together. When I, when I, when I write a script for Peter, it's the, the opening stage in a negotiation. You know, he takes the script as an invitation to treat. Um, and, and I'm perfectly happy with that because his instincts are really good and he knows what I'm trying to do often better than I do. There's a, there's a scene in Lucifer, I don't know if any of you have read Lucifer, uh, where we meet Christopher Rudd, who's a guy who's gone to hell because he murdered a child. And there's a three-page sequence where you get that backstory. Uh, he found, finds out his wife is having an affair, he goes to a berserk rage and runs this kid through with a sword. It was the kid's dad was having an affair with his wife. So he's in hell and he recognises that this is where he belongs and he's never going to leave it. And I wrote that as three regular comic pages with five or six um, panels on each. And Peter said, you yeah, know, that's not the way to do it because he's thinking about this every moment of every day. He's reliving those events again and again and again. So let's not have five panels on page, let's have a hundred. And he, he, he did these three pages with lots and lots of tiny insert panels that just have the same, the same visual motifs running through them again and again. But I have to admit, when I start out with an artist, I script tight, I script very, um, very prescriptively, and then I figure it out as I go along. Um, generally speaking, like I said, you know, the, the artist has got a better visual imagination than I have, and so I'll learn to trust them, but, but it's a process. So do you kind of script it then send it off and then you're just done, or is there like back and forth? There's a lot of back and forth, yeah. If the editor's doing their job, there's a lot of back and forth. I have worked on books where I didn't have any direct contact with the artist because the editor sucked. Um, <laughs> at the moment, on, on um, uh, Dollhouse Family, Peter is doing uh, layouts, and Vince Locke is doing um, pencils, then inks. We've got Christiane Peter on art, and well, not on colour, sorry, and we've got uh, Tom Klein lettering, and at every stage of the process, we're all yakking away about it. It's a very, it's a very organic way to, to, to tell, to, to create a comic book story. But it does depend on the editor being good, and, because the, the editor's got to be the linchpin in all of those communications. At the back, yeah, Carl? Yeah, I just wondered, you were saying while you were teaching um, your wife and she were reading comics, and just wondered, obviously, time period, what they were, um, and also how do you feel about British comic books at the moment, obviously, in the 70s and 80s? 
Smith's was inundated with stuff. Like at the moment, there's only 2,000 ATE, Reno's annual. Um, do you see like a boom period coming back, obviously, with the Marvel films? But um, what was the first part? Of the just asking about the books you were reading just before you got into actually writing for. for oh, so the stuff, the stuff that was my, my influences. So I, I was really lucky. I, I, um, I started writing for comics around about the time of what's come to be called the British Invasion, or sometimes the first British Invasion. Um, all the American publishers thought that this was a tiny island full of Alan Moore's. So they sent, they sent editors over with butterfly nets to catch, um, <laughs> catch um, and that was when I came into the field. So I sort of, sort of riding, on the, um, riding on the shoulders of those guys, uh, and they were my direct influences. Um, Neil, most obviously. I mean, if you look at the first, the first four issues of Lucifer, that's me pastiche Neil. I don't become, I don't become me until uh, Born with the Dead, the issue that introduces Elaine Bella. That's the first time, sort of recognisably, a bit different than the Sandman formula. But I literally learned to write comics by copying what Neil was doing um, and what Alan Moore was doing. Uh, although that was not always so successful. Um, <laughs> Because Alan is, is Alan. Um, I've never, I never imitated Grant, but I think Grant is a genius. Um, I think Doom Patrol is probably the best superhero comic that's ever existed. I think yeah, Animal Man um, and We Three did extraordinary things. So um, he's always been in the back of my head. Um, so that, those, those were the things I was reading. I was reading everything that came out of Vertigo, um, but anything that those guys did particularly. Um, I'm much less knowledgeable about what's happening now, um, which is a, a disturbing thing to have to admit. I don't read many comics at the moment. I read a lot of French um, bon dessinée. Um, so, uh, David Beauchard, uh, Johan Spar, who does The Rabbi's Cat, um, Philemon, um, Old Lucky Luke and Asterix, stuff like that. But I don't, I don't read much British and American stuff, which is a bad thing, because I think um, it's dangerous not to be a consumer of the thing that you're creating because there's a, there's a conversation that's going on in any genre, in any medium. There's a conversation, and if you're not part of the conversation, the chances are that you're, um, you're, drifting, you're drifting away in, in ways that can be quite deleterious. Thank you. Yeah. Anyone else? I was just going to oh, oh, hang on. Oh. That's a great quote because it immediately made me think of various people I know about poetry. And how I sometimes want to say what you just said. <laughs> I want to say that. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. You're very welcome. <laughs> uh, I get royalties when you say it. <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered how um, your experience of writing comics has changed with better communication. Because I guess there's more opportunities. Is it, you can better see what the artist is doing now through a lot of art has generated electronically anyway. Yeah. And scans are obviously better. I just wonder if that had changed the way you work. Oh my God, in so many ways. Well, when I, when I started writing comics, I had to send my scripts by fax. <laughs> so I had to phone Shelley uh, or Lisa and say, there's a script coming through. And then I had to go to a print shop and feed the through one page at a time. And somewhere in the DC building, a printer would spit out a script. And sometimes they'd get to it in time, sometimes they wouldn't, or it would go to the wrong printer. and. Uh, and artists used to have to physically send pages by courier, whereas now everything is sort of like instantaneously um, sent by a, you know, as an attachment or via a file transfer service. Um, but I think also the digital revolution has changed the way comic art is produced, um, com completely changed it. Uh, Peter is fully digital now. He had surgery on his hand a few years ago and he doesn't have the strength or the stability in his wrist that he used to have. So he works on a Cintiq. Uh, his, his, his studio looks like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> he has five or six different monitors. One of them is just a TV that's on doing, showing crappy old uh, 60s dramas. The rest are actually things like the screens on which he sort of puts his work in progress. He flings stuff backwards and forwards. Every line can be like, taken off or adjusted once it's on the page. Nothing is final until he says it's final. Um, it's incredibly versatile. It gives him an enormous amount of control which he could never have had if he was working on paper. Some artists hated that. Um, when we went over to, uh, to uh, America for the Fable Town convention, Mark Buckingham went to Peter's house, and Peter said, you have to try the Cintiq. 
So Mark sat at the Cintiq and did a few sketches, sat there for an hour or so, got up and said, that's amazing, but I never want to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's still, he's still um, committed to ink. But yeah, it has it's changed. It's changed the uh, it's changed every creative medium, I think, but in in good ways. Well, I hope that we see you again. Um, that was a real honour. Um, I really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for yeah uh, coming and sharing your experience and expertise with us. That was that was great, and hopefully everyone else enjoyed it uh, as much as I did. Um, but yeah, let's please thank our guests. And our guests.